0: Our scripture for today is Genesis 26:12 through 35. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of the water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them, But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, uh, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called it Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servant dug a well. When Abimelech went uh, went to him from Gerar with Ahazeth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me, and you have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a swarm A sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and you have done to you, touch and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba, to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, to Hittite to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I'm, I'm really glad to, to be together, and uh, Kevin, on his announcements, talked about community groups, and I don't think it was in the announcements, but we actually have on the table over here each of our six groups that we're launching this fall and a sign-up sheet. And on the sheet, it says the name of the group and the night of the week that it meets. And so, something to, you know, maybe you could take a picture of each one if you want to uh, think about it and and talk about which one you could be a part of. Um, If you've never been a part of a group like that, I'd love to, for Kevin or many of us or anybody, any name on that sheet to talk more about what it is, why you should be a part of it. Um, It really is it's really hard even with the people that we have in our church for all of us to be aware of each other to the point of like if you come on a sunday morning you could feel not like not connected and no one's i don't think we're trying to do that but it's just uh just the nature if i'm at home saying who do i need to connect with and i pray that regularly um, I, I, I don't even think I can connect with everybody in our church in a deeply meaningful way. Now, I always want to be open to that, and I desire that that happens frequently. And at the same time, like, a nature of our groups is how we stay connected with each other, how we grow together, how, how we walk together, um, and, and how churches. Um, it, it's easy for church to be this one hour on a Sunday. And that's kind of how I grew up thinking about church is like, uh, and I, kinda, I think even grew up thinking God exists for one hour on Sunday. And then I kind of lived the rest of the week as if uh, I was the king of the universe. And uh, And uh, groups are a way that we, we gather on Sundays, and this is vitally important, and we come together scattered throughout the week. And it is such a strong way that we keep growing. We grow together. We, we live out the one another's of scripture. So we'll be talking about community groups a lot over the, the next many weeks. And today is a, is a great first step of even, if you put your name on the list, you are not committing to be a part of that group for the rest of your life or anything. You're basically just saying, hey, I'm interested. Um, And then the leader will will connect with you and we can go from there. So We are in Genesis 26 today. Uh, Rebecca uh, Bravely read names and all those things Um, Agriculture is kind of a theme of today and I was I bumped into a farmer yesterday as we were just or two days ago We were out on a walk and I was just like crops look great And, you know, a lot of times a farmer in the area will then give you like 10 negative things. Like, even if you try to do a positive thing, they'll give you 10 negative things before they consent to a positive thing, you know? And his first thing he said was, they look beautiful. And I was like, taken back a little bit. Like, wow, the crops must be amazing this year for a seasoned farmer to just say beautiful without any negative things lined up in front of it that could possibly happen. But he did say, we've been humbled a lot over the last many years by derecho and all sorts of things. And this season has been a really good, well-timed, sufficient rains have fallen. And I geeked out recently on just being like, because you know we buy little things of water at the gas station that are like, it feels like a good deal for it to be a dollar <laughs> for like one thing of water. And I, I kind of got out my calculator and I was like, how much water falls from the sky when we get an inch of rain? So, so Google told me that on one acre of farmland, one inch of rain is 27,154 gallons of water. So one inch of rain, one acre, 27,154 gallons of water have fallen. And I I got a rain gauge this year. I feel like I'm all grown up. I have a rain gauge at my house now. And I I went out one morning after it rained really hard and the rain gauge showed two and a half inches of rain fallen, you know, on one rain. And so if on an 80-acre field, 80-acre field, two and a half inches of rain is 5,430,800 gallons of water. So just think, if, if you even had to pay a penny a gallon for water, like that would make farming not economically viable. And some may argue it's not economically viable now, maybe. But, for a rain like that, 5,438,800 gallons of water on just one 80-acre field in one rainfall. So if you multiply what's happening in our county or in our community, so, you know, like I think sometimes people will make fun of us in rural areas who talk about the weather and kind of be like, oh, that's so stereotypical, and so like you don't have anything else to talk about, so you talk about the weather. Um, but I, someone brought that up to me. I was in a city recently, and someone brought that up to me and I said we 're actually talking about economics <laughs> a lot of times when we talk about the weather and we 're talking about the health of our economic vitality of our area and stuff like you know I tried to argue how like if you lived in San Francisco, you might talk about you know like something with technology or something, and it seems like you 're so connected with your community and our weather is so vital to our community, and because well-timed rains are a central part of the economics of our community. So, mentioning it, it's like, what does this have to do with church and the Bible? So, in Genesis 26, where we're at today, is a type of context where God is teaching Isaac, Abraham's son, huge lessons through the lens of agriculture. And huge lessons about how he should live with God, how he should think about God, how he should trust God. And for us, if you, even if you don't care anything about agriculture and you just happen to live here, that what the author of life is wanting to say to each one of us about our lives is absolutely worth us being in here, worth God, opening our eyes to his truth. And so we're going to start at verse 12 of Genesis 26. Verse 12 says, And Isaac sowed, so he's sowing seeds. I'm not aware of people sowing anything other than seeds. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich." And gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Verse 14. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants. You could use the word employees too. I think it's a very similar concept. So that the Philistines, an entire people group, envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the day of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So a little context, there's a big drought happening. So we heard in the previous section, there's a big drought that's happening in the area, and Isaac is trying to survive. He's not just trying to, like, make a great profit. He's trying to survive, lead his growing family, lead his employees, um, and provide for his livestock. And he's trying to make it in a season of drought. And he lives in southern Israel. The entire country, the entire country has been promised to his dad's lineage. So, the inheritance that he has been promised is the entire land, as far as you can see. And he's living in southern Israel, just a part of it, and now he's gone to the city of Gerar, because there's a drought, and Gerar seems to to have some things that he needs for his survival to be close to Gerar, and it's a Philistine city. And the Philistines for hundreds of years are going to be enemies against the things of God. And anyone who seeks to walk with God, the Philistines are going to resist. And where they're at is an arid place. It's not an awesome natural place. If your job is agriculture, it's going to be challenging. And God is blessing Isaac way beyond what the people in the area should expect from yields. So based on the area farming practices of the day, he is getting way more than what his yield should be based on what he's doing. God is blessing Isaac, and we're told here, it's not that Isaac is just a great farmer, we're told that God is the one who's causing his prosperity. Now, it doesn't mean that it's like, well, if I follow God, I, why doesn't my bank account look to be the envy of nations like Isaac's is? God is choosing in this moment to, to bless him. And we, I think we'll see that he is blessing all of us in the things that he is promising over us and promising to us. And he is blessing Isaac in a very tangible way where people, can, people who hate God can see God is doing something in this guy's life. And so the Philistines are actually resisting and filling in wells. Saying like, hey, I know that you have to actually use irrigation. So we're going to cut off the ability for you to have water. Good luck with that. <laughs> with having God continue to prosper you. And so, when the Philistines are doing this, they are not just resisting Isaac, they're resisting the one who's blessing Isaac. Because the Lord is the one doing this, and they're trying to undo it. And I've, even, I've, I've been in this role in my own life. Before I gave my life to Jesus, recognized his realness, recognized his goodness towards me, gave my life to him, I was working against what he was working for things he was doing in people's life I was trying to get that work undone so that they could look to me instead of look to God and this area is seeing what is happening and what Abimelech's, Abimelech is the he's the head of this area the governor of this land and he says get away from us you are more mighty than we are interesting thing to say it because I think Isaac could have been like, no. If I'm that mighty and strong, I, you get away from me. Uh, I mean, Isaac doesn't have an army like this guy has. So, so it's interesting that Abimelech is saying this and is saying how mighty he is. Um, and Isaac doesn't fight him. Isaac doesn't resist him. Look at verse 17. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar. So he was in Gerar, now he went to the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham, maybe thinking that God was with Abraham, now Abraham's gone, we can maybe get back to the way it used to be. Let's fill up all these wells, maybe God's done with those, those people, and, uh, and we get all of our land back and our water back, it's all ours, mine, mine, mine. And he gave them the names that his father had given them, verse 19, but when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. Remember, God has promised the land is yours, Abraham and all your descendants. And the Philistines are like, no, that is ours. The water is ours. So he called the name of the well, Essek, because they contended with him. Verse 21, then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, and he called the name Sitna, and he moved from there and dug, so he's basically providing water for the Philistines. Uh, Verse 22, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So, they were in Gerar, now they're in the valley of Gerar, so they're not in the the vicinity of the city. Oh, and I forgot to mention, we do have a picture of Gerar um, up here. Yeah. So here's kind of a photo of the area where archaeologists think Garar was. So you can see it's some cedar trees, um, you know, there's definitely vegetation there, um, and at the same time, you know… it doesn't look like Iowa as it relates to if you are about planting seeds and pasturing animals and things like that. So, so they were in Gerar, which was a preferred location. Now they're in the valley of Gerar, and Isaac has no access to water as he keeps finding water, and they get shut down. Finding water, they got shut down. God has promised the land to Isaac, and the Philistines are saying it's theirs, Without water in this area, but you know, without water, we can't survive. Without water, they can't survive. And it is stark in that area. So when they get to dig the Rehoboth well, they feel like they found their home. They found their place. But then Isaac, interesting, is led to go from there. So he's like, hey, we're not facing opposition here. You know, maybe the, the Philistines were like, man, they're so far out. Who cares if they're over there? But look at verse 23. From there, he, Isaac, and all of his people, went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I'm with you and will bless you and will multiply your offspring from my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there And there, Isaac's servants dug a well. So just picture again, Isaac is not a computer programmer. Isaac is not somebody who telecommutes. Isaac is a person who his survival and the survival of his family are based on the land. He has herds, he has crops, and it's not exactly clear why he leaves Rehoboth. Like, we're never told why he leaves there. He's found water. They're able to live there, it seems, but he leaves. And it seems most likely that God has just called him there. You know, there isn't a great biblical answer that we're given. It just seems like God has called him to 'er Beersheba. And so, Iowa is a good state for agriculture. Looked it up. Iowa, on average receives 30 inches of rain per year. It's kind of the average. So it's not the rainiest state like Hawaii and states, which probably people who know more than me would say, you know, if we got way more rain than that, it probably wouldn't be a great state for agriculture. It might be too wet. Um, So we receive about 30 inches of rain per year. So I wanted to compare that, and I thought of like a bad place to probably be like a person with seed to sow and all that stuff might be Tucson, Arizona. Like, you know, I I just wouldn't want to be called there, period, but not be called there as a farmer. And Tucson, on average, gets 11 inches of rain per year. So, about a third of what Iowa does. So, God calls Isaac to Beersheba. Okay, Iowa gets 30 inches of rain. Tucson, Arizona gets 11 inches of rain. Beersheba annually averages two-tenths of rain per year. Can you believe that? Two-tenths per year of rain in the place that God called a man to come and live and farm Two tenths of rain per year. It does not rain there ever, if that's the average, right? Like there's more rain in your cups, probably, than a lot of people see in a year. Two tenths. When Isaac arrives to that place, the very night he shows up, God looks at him and says, don't be afraid. Look at me, don't be afraid, look at me. I am your dad's God and I am your God and I am with you and I will bless you. And I think he could be like, we may have responded in radically different ways than Isaac. And I hope that's part of the transformation process for us, is that God uses moments like this to actually step into our story and where we're at. Because you can tell from Isaac that words of promise from God are more valuable to his survival than a river in a place that gets two-tenths of rain per year. He would rather have a promise from God that he can soak in than even have rivers of water around him. How do we know this? Look at the passage again. He says, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abram's sake. Then verse 25. So he built an altar there, called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there, Isaac's servants dug a well. Started to dig, is how it's worded. Haven't found anything, started to dig. So, first, the first thing that Isaac does is he builds an altar to worship God. Just based on God's promises alone, he builds an altar to worship God. He's like, hey, let's worship him. And now his people could have been like, for what? It's really hot out here, I'm thirsty. And it doesn't rain. <laughs> and it's like, let's worship him because of what he's promised us. Because of who he is. So he worships before there's water. And then second, he pitches a tent. And which isn't like this little like, Coleman Walmart tent. They, it's, it's their house. They put up their home there. If you go in that area, the Bedouins, they have tents that are like homes. And some people even in our church have stayed in tents like out west that have like real beds and plumbing and all that stuff. And so they basically, he says, we're living here. No water. And they've already decided we are living here. Let's set up camp. We have the promises of God on our behalf we're living here. Uh, Then, uh, third, they look for water. (laughs) I, I would do it first. I think a lot of us would do it first, but for the power of God in our lives and in our hearts, but for God's pursuit of us that we can actually trust him and look for water third. And so they look for water, and while they're doing that, a visitor shows up, verse 26, when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. So remember, they told them, get out of here. They get out of there, and then he finds them. Verse 26, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Just as, as, whether or not this next statement is factual, I don't think it's factual. I think it's what they want him to hear, Um, but they say... That you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So they're kind of rewriting history a little bit. And what I love here is Isaac is honest with them. When they show up, Isaac is is honest. He's real. He's like, you drove me away. You have hated me since we were first interacting with, with each other. I'm here in this desert. We are looking for water. But it's so clear that God has been with Isaac that I think it's unsettling to the Philistines. That their response is hey, we see God is with you and we want to be friends with you because I think they have a fear of God. They see God as real and is really on Isaac's side. And it's, I know this, I've experienced this personally. It's a dreadful thing to know that God is real and really working in people's lives and to know you are not on his side. That's a terrifying thing that these leaders of this country that have powerfully driven out a a guy who walks with God that makes them walk across the desert to find this guy. realize that God is with him and he is not with us he is on God's side I am not on God's side and I've for about three years of my life that was crystal clear to me and was terrifying and um, had me in a weird place Isaac treats Abimelech I mean Isaac can debate He could argue with Abimelech, argue about how he was treated. But look what he does in verse 30. So he, Isaac, made them a feast. Don't forget, it's in Beersheba. Okay? He made them a feast and they ate and drank. There's no water here. They haven't found any water yet. They eat and drink In the morning, they rose early and exchanged oaths, promises to each other, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So after they go away, they come and say, we found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. I love that Isaac makes a feast for his enemies. I love that they leave in peace. I love how godly Isaac is in his interaction with people who have been his enemies. He treats them like God treats us. Kindness to those who have been his enemies. Sacrificial love to those who have been his enemies. You know that was a sacrifice to give them a feast and give them water, give them things to drink when they haven 't found water themselves yet, and they 've all moved there, um, so we know from from just knowing this area that they ended up finding water in Beersheba forty feet below the surface so and this is you know before this is a shovel type deal, um, and they go forty feet below the surface is where the where the well is and here's a, we have a photo of the well uh, that they dug in Beersheba and so this is um, there 's like buildings built around this now and stuff, and so a cool thing about about old photography in the the Bible area is that um, when photography first came into existence was also before. Uh, industrialization happened in Israel, and roads were built, and all that stuff. So uh, photos from the 1800s capture a lot of the original, kind of like how this area was. And so this is Beersheba, no rain. <laughs> and this well is 12 foot, uh, is the opening of the well. And see how there's like all sorts of like little tubes, it looks like? So what that is from is from those rocks, from that stone, was when they lowered ropes down and pulled ropes up over centuries, it, would, it wore through... All of that stone, and uh, as they're lowering it forty feet, pulling it up, lowering it forty feet, pulling it up to do to do all of their irrigation. You know, no pumps are pumping the water out. They're every single bucket. It, you know, those guys are ripped, <laughs> I'm sure, uh, as they are in that land and stuff from from doing that. And I'm sure the ladies were ripped too, by the way, as they were all uh, getting from that well and digging from that well. And Isaac is making his enemies a feast. And what I love here is this is God's blessing to them. This is God's way for them. Like a a person who embraces God's promises, trusting God even even when you're in a situation that you have no idea what to do. You know, I'm sure there are nights when Isaac went to bed and it's like, what are we going to do if we don't find the water? And it's, you know, how do you go to sleep with that? You know, trust, holding on to the promises of God, knowing that he is good, that his ways are good, that he is true. And Isaac lived this way. And his oldest son, Jacob and Esau, we're going to learn a lot about Jacob um, over the next weeks to come. But we start seeing that Esau doesn't view God the same way. Esau doesn't trust God the way that Isaac does. Look at verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Esau marries two women who don't follow God. He marries two women who don't walk with God. These women, it, it's, it takes two to tango, but together with Esau and those two wives, they don't walk with God. They don't, they trust themselves, they trust themselves to provide, and they don't walk together. And look how it uses, remember, this has been so much water imagery in this chapter, so much to do with water for to live. And then it says, life was bitter. Life was bitter. Not following God's ways. And uh, I don't know where everybody's at in the room. Maybe you have been, your soul has been satisfied with the things of God. You've been walking with God. You've been, you've been in a great season. Um, maybe you feel like you're a farmer in Bathsheba. Maybe it feels like you've had two tenths of rain on your soul over the last year. Uh, maybe you're an outsider. Maybe you're seeing God's blessing to other people and you're wondering should I fight? <laughs> should I flee from what I see happening? Or should I fall down on my knees and worship? this God who I see working in those around me. And what I love about Jesus, what, what I love about all that we're taught in here is that his invitation is the same to every one of us in this room. I don't even have to know where you're at because he does and his invitation to us is the same. And what his invitation is, is himself. He is the message and the messenger. So he's the messenger that comes and teaches us that he's the message. He even says things like, if you drink from me, If instead of scurrying about hoping hoping that this thing will, will, will fill that void in you, this thing will fill you, this thing will fill you, he says, if you drink from me, you'll never thirst again. You don't have to keep drawing from wells hoping that it'll satisfy your soul. If you drink from me, you'll never thirst again. Our souls will be quenched by him in the ultimate way that he came to live in your place that even people like Abimelech, who have caused followers of God such harm, you know, the Apostle Paul was a part of a gang that the mob was killing Christians. And when Jesus said, follow me, he followed him, which you're like, wow, that's a pretty cool guy. Uh, Well, it it was good that Paul said yes. But what type of a person invites, what, who must Jesus be to invite his enemies to follow him? To say, if you come to me, I will forgive you. I will free you. There'll be a well that you draw from that will actually fill your soul. And maybe there's some of us in the room who's like, man, I've been walking with Jesus a long time and my soul feels thirsty now. And part of what we do in his design of communion is for us to meet with him, to commune with him. So a beautiful posture of your heart this morning could be, as you come to communion, could be, I'm looking to you and you alone to quench my soul. I'm meeting with the giver of life. And for some, it could be, before you come to the table, you give your life to Jesus, and you say, hey, I'm feeling this is real. Jesus, if you're real, I give my life to you. Um, opening your life up to him, we've had people in our midst do that over the last few weeks, and what's interesting is, is as they give their life to him, I think he starts teaching them like so much about him and, and forming us in his ways and so I would just wherever you're at if you don't even know where you're at with him I mean I would love to talk to you about it but you can talk to him about it if you're like hey I I know at this time I'm not I haven't given my life to him I'm not following him I would encourage you like it's not weird it won't be awkward but just don't come come forward I would encourage you to spend that time just talking to him just in your own words and saying hey would you show me if this is all real Uh, But Lord, as uh, those of us who have given our lives to you, and if some are doing that for the first time this morning, would they not resist? Would they come home running to you? For those of us, not because we're better, but that we've recognized our neediness previous to now, and you have wooed us to yourself. Lord, we, we do desire to commune with you right now. For you to... Fill us for you to quench our souls. Lord, would you even empower us to come to you right now? So, uh, when you're ready, just come forward in the middle. The ballards will serve you. Uh, Just hold your hands out. They'll give you the bread. Uh, Take wine or juice. Since there, then I'll lead us together. Uh, Go ahead and go back and remain standing. And I'll lead us together, uh, taking it as family.